Good day, everyone. This is Robert Ferguson, uh, Barbara Chris, and Daniel Baldwin here at the Stay Healthy Experience. And today, uh, like many days, is a great day, but I'm very excited about today because I've been wanting to have a conversation with Dr. Drew for a, a very long time. And so joining us today is Dr. Drew, and we're very uh, thankful to have you here today. It's my privilege, guys. Thank you. Well, you know, I know Daniel's got a thousand questions and Barbara's <laughs> chopping over there. But my opening question for you, Dr. Drew, is I'm, I'm very intrigued with, you know, the days of Loveline to where you are today, the fact that you are a, a legit licensed physician who uh, had a whole bunch of interesting things take place in your life to include triplets. Yeah. So what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for opening with that. Um, that was hell. Uh, that was something that uh, moved my wife and I. See, we went overnight from this new, you know, young couple to all-in parents. And in our original meeting with the obstetrician, we had a very strange experience where he sat us down. And he said, don't do this. Don't have triplets. Re reduce to twins. And so we were, he, he, and he, but because he was like, the mental health outcomes are no good. The physical outcomes are no good. The marriage has never survived. So have twins. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get you three healthy kids if that's what you decide to do, but have twins. So we like reeled out of there going, oh my God, what a, what a you know, Sophie's choice here. And uh, we spent the weekend locked in a hotel room just, just, just trying to figure this out. And there was some point during the weekend where I, I had this image of me playing Texas Hold'em with a pack, bunch of chips in front of me and just going all in. I just, we just decided we're, we are just all in as parents. That's our new life. Everything we have, we're going to have to get the grandparents in. Everybody's going to have to be on part of this, and we're just going all in. And it worked for us. But it was, it was survival mode for five years. I kid you not. <laughs> it was almost, it was really kind of Barbara's color when we started. And then now look at it. Look at that. <laughs> I mean, could you, could you imagine going through this, you know, breakdown or shutdown and being a new parent with triplets? Oh my God. Well, cause, cause then also I was deep into workaholism at the same time, which, you know, I was managing essentially three different careers simultaneously, almost four. So I would do, I, I was in a lot of intensive care medicine, which uh, internists don't even do anymore, but I was doing a lot of it. I was doing a lot of hospital medicine. So I would do that from about five 30 in the morning to eight 30. Then I would see medical outpatients till noon then I would go to the psychiatric hospital and I would see medical patients for a couple hours. And then I would go do the addiction services and struggle every day to get home by 10 o'clock at night. Wow. And, and that was for years and years and years. And uh, I, I, <laughs> we, just to add to the fun of the triplets, uh, when our kids were one, one of our kids suddenly needed brain surgery for an arachnoid cyst. And I went into some sort of hypomanic, whatever. And my, my wife called me at work one day and went, you need to see a therapist. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I really, that's, I, that's in my, that's in my plan. I'm going to get therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and she like stopped me in my trash. She goes, hey, hey, no, you need to go. <laughs> and, and she it said a chill down my spine. I went, okay, got it. Made a call, got a referral and, and went for 11 years after that. And and it was one of the most uh, important experiences I've ever had. Yeah, I've seen that you're a, a huge advocate for, for therapy. And mm -hmm. uh, it was, I mean, for me, it's been extremely helpful. 
Uh, Barbara's always in, in to see her therapist. I am. <laughs> here's my, here's the, the comedy. So my, my therapist, while I was in treatment, uh, became a psychoanalyst. And, and because she had these extremely good boundaries, she would never tell me whether I had pushed her in that direction. I kept going deeper, I need deeper, I need to go more, 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 more. And, and, uh, and she never, ever told me. Uh, and now I, I have a fantasy of going back and doing psychoanalysis you know, just, you know, I don't need it, but just I think it'd be a fascinating exploration. You know, I would say that I remember when, when um, Drew and I first met, he was doing the first season of Celebrity Rehab and I was already sober. And they approached me, the producers, there was two different entities. There was Dr. Drew and what was going on at his rehab, which he did kind of in the morning. And there was literally like a wall built up. It was it Pasadena Recovery, was it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. Yes. So on the other side was a legit fully running hospital that Drew is pretty much running. So he'd go run away from us, which was was set up as best he could to be rehab. But when he would leave, we were left to the devices of producers of a reality show. So it was completely different. And then when Drew came back to, to check up on us and do like other groups and stuff, everyone stood straight up and was all at their best behavior again. And And I chose you know, midway through the show to leave. But I remember one of the hardest things for me was in private, what they didn't televise was some of the breakthroughs that I made with Drew. It, it, it was so frustrating for me that they, they didn't show the treatment. <laughs> they showed the reality part. Whoop. But that's, but that's the thing that um, everybody's looking for, right? I'm, I'm uh, sure. Yeah. If you think if it had been on a different network, it had been you know mm. different kind of reality show, uh, it it would have would have been different. Yeah, but that's what you've got to see. And uh, I'm gonna get Daniel back because I got to tell him. Come on, there you are. You oh. there? There he is. You have to invite me again with the camera. Yeah, I gave you the host. There you go. I'm back. Am I good? Yeah. But because of those experiences, as time went on, Daniel, they yep. would come back to me and they go, "Hey, you want to do this again?" I'm like. And after about two seasons of doing it, I go, okay, but here's the deal. You've got to set aside essentially a fortune for aftercare, number one. And number two, nobody better fucking get near these patients. Nobody. Don't, get, don't, make, eye contact, don't make eye contact with me. You can ask me like four questions. Doctor, how's the patient doing? What's the aftercare plan? What's the family therapy going to be? Uh, what, you know, um, you know, what's stepping on or something? You can ask me those kinds of therapeutic questions. Otherwise, do not make contact with me. And I swear to Christ, I'll walk off this set if anybody's asked me anything else or gets near a patient. And that kind of yeah, changed. I, 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 you know, I think we all had to kind of learn it. It was new. It never really been done. It was revolutionary. Yes. So there's always a learning curve with it. I remember doing... I didn't know you were going to be on and you didn't know I was going to be on Good Morning America. They both flew us both in. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen Drew since I left the show. And I walk in the green room and there's Drew. And I had a great rapport with you. I really appreciated a lot. I just recently wrote in an email to let you know how much, you know, I appreciate it. But I have to tell you, do you remember Gerald Rosansky, Dr. Rosansky? He was like one of the groundbreaking. He got Steve Howe, the first guy that got banned from the yeah. New York Yankees, the first guy of baseball kicked out. He yeah. was known because he got he helped get him sober after 21 a major league baseball suspension. Well, he was my therapist for 25 years. Wow. 25 years. Wow. And he was 
you know, he had to be 80 something. And one day I showed up at his office and he looked at me and he goes, my wife and I have a very New York Jewish. I talk like this. <laughs> he these elongated exhales at the end of every sentence. And he said, I'm calm. I'm, I'm hanging up my cleats, kid. Oh. And I looked at him and I said, you're hanging up your cleats. What do you mean? Like I, I didn't, and he goes, I'm retiring. Today will be our last session. No warning. Don't and I remember, and I had seen him on the phone. I want to say in the 52 weeks a year, I probably didn't miss five, six sessions a year. So for 25 years. Wow. And he goes, yeah, we're moving down to Florida. I got to play some Boca. <laughs> and I said to him, I go, can I just call you in Boca? I remember I was sat in the parking lot of my car going, what am I going to do? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he was absolutely my confidant. I will tell you, for me, um, I started stalling out in therapy after about eight years. And she finally looked at me and she goes, what are you doing here? And I, and I go, yeah, I need to leave. It took me three years of closure to leave. Right? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I decided I was leaving, I immediately started working again emotionally because that was a big piece of what I needed, which was the sort of rapprochement stuff, which I didn't get any of in childhood. And I didn't know that. And suddenly I needed it a lot. And uh, it took me three years to leave. Now, I don't know what I would have done in your position. What'd you do? Well, I had to try to find, you know, you try to find someone and I went, uh, you know, a few times, uh, probably three or four times. So he gave me two referrals. What I never found was somebody who had one and he was a master. At, yeah, he did things like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a lot. You know, like, like he, he had this little quipped that were thought provoking that drew it out of me. He didn't tell me what he thought. He didn't, he never judged me ever. ever. So, and I told him, I told I, him, some, you know, four chicks with a midget in Vegas. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 told, I told this guy everything. Good. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. sharing with us. Barbara. Barbara, I never told him about us. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I never told him about us, Barbara. Uh, <laughs> but who's the deal? That, that's, the, that's the magic of a, of a really talented, and I use that word in, with great intention, talented practitioner, which is they just know right where to put the pressure. It's, it's just a little bit of pressure to get you going in that right direction, in, in a direction without the safe environment of the holding with the therapist and your trust and, and the reflections of that person's face and your understanding of what, you know, connecting to your emotions, you keep going. Just them applying a little pressure, just the right, right yeah. in the right moment. Yeah, yeah he, he did things where, you know, and I, and I would, you know, there were other times that I told the story because it was almost, you were bragging or looking for a reaction or whatever. But I would say, and then I found myself in the car again and I turned down that street and I knew what was coming and I pulled in the driveway and I had 12, 15 grams of Coke in my hand again. And he'd go, because, mm. and I look at him and go, because what do you go? Well, usually you do things because you're looking for some, something, you know, so I'm just wondering, you knew all this stuff, you're pulling up to the car, he, he'd mirror me a lot, he'd repeat. So I'd have to listen to what that sounded like. Right. That's right. And, he, and he'd say, and, and you turned in the driveway and you're telling me you're holding the steering wheel going, don't go in that door, don't go in that door. And now you're back in the car, heading back to the Marina Del Rey Hotel with enough cocaine to kill somebody. And I'm wondering, 
between that moment of clarity of not going and then driving back, what was to be called? Like what, what was going on that you needed to go numb yourself for five more days? You know, and, and it was, no one had ever asked me stuff like that. No one ever asked me what I was looking for. Except that I'll never forget I, had to, I told you a story. It was the first time after Gerald that I, uh, that I had somebody ask me, hmm, well, well, why do you think you did that? I've never forget, no one ever asked me really why I did it. And why to me is the key. Mm-hmm. Who, what, where, when, and how are things. There's statistical information. Who is the person? What is what you did? How is the, as, you know, how you executed it? When is the, is the date in a place? But why is everything? If you don't get underneath it and find out why the motivating factor for the action in addiction, in almost anything in life, then, it, then you're never going to discover what's behind it. And so finding somebody that could get me to delve into the whys in my life um, has been difficult for me. And, and I would argue that, especially for addicts, you've got to have another person there because everything about your disease will be every answer will be getting closer to using again, as opposed to when you have somebody holding you there going, wait a minute, what, huh? That sounds like bullshit. Wait, wait, what, why, why? It, it keeps you, it keeps you connected to stuff that you A, may not want to get connected to or B, your disease obfuscates. Okay. So now you're going to have this hour and you're going to you know, get to know the lovely Barbara Chris better. You know me. And then you can answer a question at the end because usually Robert asks for a closing question. Why are Barbara I and I here with Robert Ferguson? That will be your mission to try to figure out. Why are we here with this man? (laughs) But then you bring up something that's that's very interesting because with so many people Mm -hmm. being challenged with the shutdown, they're asking the question why. And I don't feel like people are getting the answer that they're hoping to get, Dr. Why are we shut down? Why are we shut down? Uh, why are they moving very slow to open it up? There's so much confusion around it. Yeah. That I believe that people are, are struggling with the why, and I, and I see them acting out uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, and not really paying attention to what the, government, the governors are recommending. Right. Because they don't really have clarity. Well, yeah. here's part of the problem. Your officials and the so-called, and the, and the not so-called, the actual experts also don't have clarity. And that's, and people are sensing that and they're taking advantage of it. Let me just frame this comment by saying, please, we do know that masks and social distancing and hand washing is critical and it does work. Do not go all the way to not wearing masks or not giving a shit. You will get this thing. It's highly contagious. It's out there. It's around. You will get it. If you practice careful social distancing and masks and and hand washing, the evidence is you should be great. Uh, there was just some data that came out of New York today that showed if you're working on a COVID ward, your chance of getting it is only 6% if you, if you uh, properly maintain your hand washing and masks and that sort of thing. And the probability, they may not even be getting it from the hospital. They may be getting it on the outside. While if you're in shutdown, the probability of getting it was about 16%. So if you are just practicing hand washing and masks, you are doing something active and good. The reason I think people, what people are sensing is there is no science that proves that a shutdown is superior to hand washing and masks and distancing. We all have kind of an intuitive sense that it would work better, but there's no science. So I've asked multiple experts that question. 
what's the evidence that the shutdown is better? And as we start moving around, you're saying this thing may increase, what's the evidence? And every time I ask that question of an expert, I get the exact same response. That's a great question. <laughs> and then they, <laughs> and so I think people are sensing that because you can't, you know, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, who I trust completely, and we should listen to them, but they didn't recommend shutdown. It wasn't the CDC website that said go shut down. It was the governors. And I think people intuitively are kind of picking up on that split. And they're, you know, we all have a lot of narcissistic shit going on these days. And so splitting is something we do. <laughs> we, we sort of feed the splits. Uh, and if, you, if anybody works in a drug unit, you're well aware of what I'm talking about. But the public at large is, is involved in a lot of splitting behaviors too. And I think that's what this is, I think. Uh, and uh, be careful, be careful, everybody. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, so have you heard, it's interesting you should say about Fauci because there's this, uh, this doctor who wrote this book and had this paper. She's a viralist, uh, Misovich or? Yeah. Doc, the, the, a viral doc, or, or a video. Documentary pandemic. Yeah, pandemic, yeah. And, she, and, and she, some of what she says, some of what she said is truth, and some of what she said is very interesting, and a lot of what she said is BS. Oh, you think she's BSing about Fauci? Um, I she put him under the bus. Like, for instance, for instance, her criticism of how he managed the rollout of HIV medications, she doesn't know what he was thinking and managing and all the different businesses and legislations and all this stuff. She was a she was an un, unhappy employee who wanted right. to do things her way and has held a grudge about that for 30 years. <laughs> I worked alongside Fauci in the AIDS thing. It's, you know, it's the, the reason, not alongside, but I mean, he was an inspiration to me back in 1984. He is the reason I went on the radio in 1984. This is a little known fact. He was out there saying, you young doctors, you've got to educate people. They've got to change their behavior. We're going to have 10 million dead of people. You've got to tell them you're you know, 10 million dead, 10 million dead. I remember that number. And so when I went on the radio one night by accident and I started talking about it and I realized young people had not been exposed to it even. Young people, they were not giving the information to anybody under the age of about 22. And I thought, oh my God, this is in insane. We got, I got to keep talking about this. And I did it for the next 10 years, one day a week, thinking I was doing community service. Really motivated by the HIV epidemic, which by the way, at that moment, we had just stopped calling GRIDS, gay-related intestinal disease syndrome. We had not yet had a causative agent. We did a few months later called HTLV3, if you remember that, before we called it HIV. And uh, the term safe sex had not been coined yet. That came a couple of years later. So it was something that, you know, he's always been an inspiration to me. And so when this whole thing started, I said from the beginning, just listen to Fauci. He will get us through this. And uh, he's very conservative. And it may be a little excessive, but he will get us through this. Interesting. So does that comment then from Dr. Fauci, does that uh, tie into this comp really cool comment I read about you? It said some, you said something like, always wanted to be relevant to pop culture. Is that kind of tying with what he kind of, that task that he gave you early on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't I want to be relevant to pop culture. I, I want to reuse pop culture to make a difference. I, I've always just wanted to climb into vehicles that maybe are uncomfortable for me, but people that make and create pop culture know what they're doing. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, give me the opportunity to reach eyes and, you know, reach people that might not be listening otherwise. Mm, absolutely.
I think it's like we're talking a little bit about just the information out there with COVID and all that and how but would the average person just navigate all this conflicting information? Yeah, I, so I hard. really hard. Well, well, you know, you know, you said something before, Drew, and that's um, uh, it depends on how you define what it is the topic they're saying. Let me let me give an example. Um, saying uh, washing your hands and um, and using uh, masks versus staying home or or lockdown. Now, if your definition of lockdown is Robert Ferguson's or 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 Robin, my fiance's, that, 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 and honestly, and I'm not criticizing either one, then you should probably wash your hands more than I do. I don't need to wash my hands because there hasn't been one person in my house in eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. Not one. Wait, man, I, why, why are you pointing me out, Daniel? No, no. <laughs> because because, because you've, you've, uh, you've been to a few things where you've had to go and, and you have your kids there, but, but your kids have now... Like my kids have not seen another human being but me or been around another human being. They haven't See, been with their mother. They haven't even been with their mother, which by the way, even when they're with your mother, unless you're with that mother 24 hours a day and know every person she's been, everything she's touched, then it is not a lockdown. Not my definition of a lockdown. My kids, <laughs> my kids have been exposed to zero other human beings in eight weeks. Zero. Right. So, so your point is well taken. And, and so – Obviously, that's a superior way to do it, right? I mean, how could that, how intuitively, how could that be, you know, less good? Right. So, so, so just let me just give you my last sentence and then you go. And that is, so I wrote on social media, just remember something. This virus has to be invited into your home. You must invite it. It does not just enter your home. It must be with an invitation. You are bringing it into your home by what you've done or other human beings you're bringing to your home. If you don't break that rule, you will never get the virus. Go. So, so, and so the question is, and the same applies to masks and hand washing and all that stuff. If you, if you, if you practice that perfectly, is it different than what you're doing? And the answer is, we don't know. Right. And, and it may be just as good. For instance, there's only been one case of outdoor transmission of, of uh, coronavirus in China. They, they, did, they studied hundreds of cases one was an out-of-door transmission. Wow. So indoors already has a liability to it. If, if like I, I was working with a couple who I was really worried about and I kept, you know, checking, you quarantine, you quarantine. Oh yeah, yeah, we have no contact with anybody. Then the wife gets sick and she had recurrent pneumonias. So I said, are you sure you haven't had any contact? No, no contact. And uh, I start treating her for pneumonia. She keeps getting sicker. I'm like, something's not right. It doesn't feel right. We got to get her tested. Tested, positive. What? How? Oh, well, you know, my son's a sheriff and he had a fever last week and he did come in to lay down on the couch. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so this happens. And to your point, Daniel, that, that, but again, when you're looking at large populations, you have to look at the behavior of large populations. Right. Not everyone's Daniel Baldwin and able to really do this properly. And the same thing on the outside. The same thing, the same criticism applies to masks and hand washing. People are going to be imperfect about that too. And is that going to be enough to really create a problem for us? The number one transmission, they didn't get it. They didn't figure it out until it was way too late. The number one transmission of the disease in Italy, do you know? Robert and Barbara know because I told them. Uh, wait, I think I heard this. Was it elevators? Gasoline pumps. Oh, gasoline pumps. Yeah. 
pushing the dial and pulling this handle because it lives longer on metal. And they didn't realize that now it's standard practice that you have to have. They have at some gas pumps in Italy, gloves for you to wear. They nice. leave the glove there. But yeah, people were squeezing the handle after the last guy coughing in his hand and boom, they got it. Well, you know, right now there's this disproportionate um, outcome of African-Americans dying as a result of COVID-19. Yep, yep. And, and I've been doing a lot of talks about it. And it's interesting because based on the work you've done and what you do, I really believe that if you took the lead on this, it would, you would be able to help quite a few people. And my point is this, you have these crowded apartments, these crowded that's homes and under-resourced communities. That's number one, living environment. I totally agree with you, number living one. And if, they, and if they don't look at that, particularly in New York City, they're not helping. They, right. they look at that, right? Yeah. They, no one has brought that up, Robert, but you're absolutely correct. That's number one, okay, yep. And then we have this growing problem of communication inside of the home. So you got grandma on the back who's got diabetes, a little bit of hypertension, and you got the kids who aren't listening. They're constantly getting together and they're going in and out of the house. And yep. now grandma is sick. Yep. We need some help in helping people understand that the kids need to be thinking about, I mean, there's like a disconnect in the families. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I'm going to add a couple more issues. The, the, the Surgeon General of the state of California was just about, was just rolling out an, a phenomenal uh, uh, campaign about adverse childhood experiences. And she's African-American and she wanted to really look at this in stressed environments, right? If you're economically stressed, you're gonna have more adverse childhood experiences. And adverse childhood experiences, of course, have horrible health outcomes, both mental health and physical health. And a lot of the dietary indiscretions, a lot of the obesity, a lot of the diabetes, a lot of, a lot of it, you can, you can put a direct straight line back to adverse childhood experiences. And I really think it's time we had that conversation. I was so happy to see her doing it. I hope she turns that switch back on again once this is all over and we begin to roll that out again and have those conversations in earnest. And then access to healthcare, how, you know, the, the trust of the healthcare system. The healthcare system, if it doesn't get honest about how poorly it has served the African-American community throughout American history, uh, you're not gonna rebuild that trust. And, and I, would, I would say, just start with the crack epidemic and apologize for that. Apologize for how we dealt with that and criminalized that. Just start there. It's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's a shame. And we should, we should fall on our swords on that one. And then we can reel back many, many other things that we did wrong. What do you think about all that? Well, if you had, if you had a mom, a grandma who's watching this, and she's like, I don't want that corona, right? Because they've come up with some different terms. <laughs> Keep that corona away from me. Well, how, what can she do? Like, should, should she just kick her grandkids out of the house? You know what I mean? Like, you guys cannot come in the home because it's the kids causing these problems. Yeah, I, I uh, oh boy. I, I think she's, yeah, I only have partial solution, which is, which is she has to, this is really unfair, but she's going to have to behave like she's out in the world. So it's hand washing gloves, masks. You know, clear, you know, Clorox, if you can get it, or homemade Clorox wipes. Dr. Oz has a, a recipe on his website on how to make Clorox wipes. And she has to protect herself in the house from the outside world. I, I, I think that's the only choice. That's that means locking that door. <laughs> it, could, it could, and you could certainly. I know a lot of grandmas that hold pretty good sway over kids. And then when they say they're going to lock the door, they know she means it. So that might, that might be enough. 
but but I don't know. Uh, locking kids outside, I hate to do that too. But to be fair, I mean, I, I don't know how we do that. I, I don't know. You know, you know, I got to make an observation. So, I, and I always do this when we do different shows. I always wait to see what our guests, because Barbara has the, you know, cover of McCall's magazine lamp in the background from her beautiful living room. Robert chooses to go with the studio director's chair. And I always have to <laughs> But, but, and I always had the blank boring wall behind me because I sit in the same spot. But check out Drew. Drew has this like he's floating in from outer space. <laughs> it dims all. It looks like it looks like he's in heaven. You know, it's like it's just his head moving with darkness. I might go with Drew's look next time. I know. It's impressive, Drew. Light on. It's a very modern look. It is. It's very, no. It's 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 uh it's Max headroom. It's <laughs> just the head. Just the head. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah, okay. that whole oh. talk about the whole grandma thing and, the, and COVID, I mean, I have the opposite. And I'm not, I don't mean to throw my parents under the bus here all, but I have the opposite uh, dilemma because they're wanting to see me and my brother and sister and our kids. Yeah. My mom is wanting to see us. I'm like, no, they've been no. in quarantine for now almost, you know, well over a month. And, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. And kind of like what you were talking about earlier, Robert, people are getting kind of anxious and antsy. And, Feeling like they want to start, you know, hanging out with people again, and I'm thinking, no, I don't think that's a good. How, how old are they? Um, my dad's in his 80s. My mom's in her uh, mid 70s. So you could be tested. You could test everybody. Mm -hmm. Right, that's one way to deal with it, and and then still you're taking risk, obviously. Yeah. But I will tell you a philosophical conversation I'm starting to have with older people, which is, they want to be in control of their own risk now. Trust me, people are um, often think differently when they actually get sick. I mean, I've heard, I've heard this kind of BS from smokers forever. You know what I mean? But, and then when they get sick, then they're horrified. But, but there's a piece of this that is realistic, which is, you, I'm 85 or whatever, and you take three months of my life away. That's a major piece of the remaining period of my life, and I might want to risk losing a couple of years to hold on to that three months. That's a bet I want to be in control of. And I've heard that a lot right now, that I, I want to decide when I die. I want to decide how much risk I take at the end of life. You may want me to stay around. And this is a problem all the time with death and dying, where the families make people stay around longer than they want to. So you should have a really serious conversation with your parents uh, about how much risk they're willing to take and make sure that, and the hard part is to make sure they're really assessing it. Sometimes it's just kind of a denial, right? Uh, it's hard to tell sometimes. Well, on the, on the philosophical side of that, aren't you really looking at, if you're in, you don't know, you, you know what, how long you're gonna live. So there's that great line that Chris Walken says in the movie, The Dead Zone, when he says, you don't wanna know if you're gonna die. You wanna know if you're gonna die tomorrow. Right. You want, he, when he's holding his hand and the guy wants him to predict when he's gonna die. So if your parents are in relative good shape, and you know, even at 80, my mother's 90. So if you were putting at risk, that you were going to live for another 12 or 15 years if you got COVID and died in the next three months, as opposed to giving. But if you're in bad shape or you're somebody who's already dying and you're going to give up three months and not see your family, then yes, of course, I could see why. But there lies the question, what are you risking? And you don't know what you're risking. It becomes exactly what, what, what Drew said. It's a philosophical question about what the quality of life is to you versus you know, many different things. For me, I'm pretty sure I'm going to live for decades more than I am now. And so, but I am a diabetic. So, and, I, and I've said to other people who go, 
Well, I'll get, listen, I'll come by my, yeah, no, you're not coming to my house. <laughs> because, because, but, but I also know they're not living their life the way I am. Right. Be, when I do go out and get gas, I have an, a, a, an N99 mask on. I have rubber gloves on. You know, I mean, I am not taking a chance. My kids don't get out of the car. I use the gas with one hand. You know, I'm, I'm very cautious of it. I can't afford to get this. I've gotten in much better shape through Robert's Diet Free Life. I've lost over 50 pounds. Oh, wow. Good for you. Yeah, 57 pounds. Wow. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and my diabetes, I no longer am using insulin. Um, you know, so I, I've, I've made a lot of milestones in a year. But, That's but I got and I quit smoking. So, um, but you know what? I'm still a diabetic and I'm not at 60 years old this year. I am a target when you look at the statistics of what's going right. on here. You check some of the boxes and, and, and I will tell you that I, I've seen some patients that checked all the boxes. And, and this is something I did not know about SARS coronavirus too, is that in those, in those cases, it's a different illness. It's like nothing I've ever seen. It is ferocious. And, and I've, I've had, I've seen mild cases, I've seen asymptomatic cases, I've seen cases in elderly patients with multiple medical problems, but not the specific medical problems that this disease takes advantage of, and they do fine. But when you check those boxes, we gotta figure out why. We have not really figured it out yet, but this inflammatory cascade is activated and it's just brutal, it's just brutal. I mean, Dr. Drew, do you believe that as we come out of this and go into the next stages or phases of life, that people are going to be a little bit more present when it comes to taking care of themselves? I, I cannot tell what it's going to be like on the other side of this. I don't know about you guys, but I am, it, it's, a, it's a bit of the fog of war for me right now. Right? I hear people announcing all kinds of major changes. And I don't know. I know how people are. They kind of just they kind of go back to whatever they were. You know what I mean? They, they, I'm hoping there'll be some changes, that we needed some changes. Uh, I'm hoping people talk about end of life much more seriously and what their wishes are. I'm hoping people talk about whether or not they want to be ever in a nursing home uh, and what the plans they want their family to make, if not, and what conditions that we give whatever kinds of care that are coming for all of us as we age. I'm hoping it does lead to us continuing, because a lot of people have gotten their act together in this in terms, of, I know I'm running more, I know my diet's a little better, and I hope I'm able to continue that. And if, if those, just those three things, I'll be pretty happy. Pretty happy. I, on, the, on the mental health side, um, I don't know. I just don't see it yet. I don't know where it's going to take us. Uh, it, 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 the only thing I know is that we all have a hunger for social interaction. It's really a, an appetite, a hunger. And I'm hoping maybe that hunger will translate into us treating each other a bit better. We'll yeah. see. Okay, well, we'll give some tips for dating because there's some people out there that are struggling, Dr. Drew. For dating? <laughs> Trust me, Robert's not one of them. Robert dated during the virus. Oh, yeah, I know. And, and, and I do believe there'll be a whole flood <laughs> once people are sort of released from behind the veil here. <laughs> Robert has a suite at a hotel near his house that holds them in quarantine for 14 days. <laughs> Sweet <laughs> in quarantine. <laughs> He's got a quarantine suite. He swabs them, slobs them, and then mobs them. What have you got? <laughs> Sweden. Why people are from Sweden? Oh, the whole process. Yeah. Oh, yes, he does. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> you know, I, I gotta, I gotta say though that, and, 
and I don't want to be the, the Debbie Downer, but every one of these, you know, Wuhan, Italy, in Spain, there's a secondary spike that's probably going to be worse than the original epidemic, and I don't think we've seen that yet. yet. It I could think. be. It, it, that's what everyone's worrying about. Now, the good news is, like anything else, um, the looking for things are always better than things that catch us off guard. And people right. are looking for it. California has generally done a pretty good job out here. We went, we locked down early. We, we've done, we've done some stupid things, but, but we're now building an army of people they're calling uh, COVID detectives to go out and find and isolate anybody that's a positive test. If that, if that is, you know, 20 or 30,000 people who are effective, that could be the difference between a second spike and just a just a mild sort of persistence of this whole thing. Yeah, Man, have, you, have you guys seen Daniel? Have you seen the tests when they stick the thing up in the nose? Yeah, they got, you can drive up in your car and do it here. Well, I was watching the the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Right, they have a big fight this Saturday, mm -hmm. and everyone that comes in, they test them. So you see these big, strong fighters. They sit down in a chair and they take that long Q-tip. And they just push it up in that nose. <laughs> you, when you have the test, you, you can't believe how far into your head it goes. You, you can't oh. You're just like, what? Aren't you? Wait a minute. Is that, that, isn't that my brain? <laughs> uh, and uh, I had H1N1 back in the day. And H1N1 was our last pandemic. Uh, it was in 2009. It was the swine flu. And that killed primarily 40 to 60-year-olds. Uh, and it actually killed 500,000 people and infected 1 billion people. Whoa. And, and that's the last pandemic we had, and nobody even knows it happened. Uh, that's how different our response has been in this one. Um, and it was horrible. It was brutal. I, really, I thought I was going to die from that thing. It, it was rough. Um, so, uh, you know, we've had other pandemics. We've gone through it. And, and I asked an epidemiologist, an expert on this, why... why how we made it through that one. And she said, we were lucky. We were just lucky that that one didn't spread worse and cause more death. It'd be so great if like that, what you just shared would be so helpful if they shared that nationally. It's kind of like the other day I was talking to my, my barber and he asked me if I remembered our friend, this guy named Gerald. So Gerald, right before this all happened, goes to Seattle, comes back, he has the virus. Then it gets really bad. He goes into a coma. Four days, wakes up, his mom got the virus from him, and she's dead. Mm -hmm. No one's really talking about those stories, because that would make someone go, oh, nope, no one's coming in today. Oh, it happens all the time. I mean, you got to remember, 98 plus percent get well. But if you're in that risk category, it's a whole different disorder. It's a whole different thing. So let's say you get sick, you get really sick, you make it through, but now you infect your household. It's not good. It's not yeah, good at all. But, but I, I brought up the H1N1 back when this whole thing was starting, and people excoriated me for it. I was just trying to get people to balance their emotional response. Just balance it. You don't have to panic about this thing if you're not in a risk category. I mean, just consider that the last pandemic we went through without you even knowing it, or certainly not remembering it. Uh, if you're in a risk category, pay attention. Pay attention. All right, you guys, hey, let's do a rapid fire with Dr. Drew. So basically, I'll ask a question, Dr. Drew, and then I'll right. answer it, and then it'll go to Barbara, then Daniel, and we'll rotate until each one of us gets to ask you three questions. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, four. No. <laughs> All 
Well, well, my my first question is, I mean, you seem like you appear to have taken care of yourself really well with a, a career that's demanding, raising triplets, being married. What's your secret for staying in such good physical shape? Uh, I have lifted weights essentially my entire life. And I just, even if I just squeeze in 20 or 30 minutes in my garage before I get in the car and drive out, I, I just... I, I just need it. I actually need it. It's, it's my meditation. And so I think that's been a part of it. And I have metabolic syndrome, right? I have hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. I checked the, some of the boxes for this disease. And, I've, I, and my dad had all kinds of complications from it. So I kind of tried to watch my diet as a result. Nice. Barbara? Okay. So of all the work that you've done, where do you think that you've made the most impact and why? Well, there's this guy named Daniel Baldwin. (laughs) 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 That guy. He won't leave me alone. (laughs) Uh, And and, and to pull the curtain aside, Daniel is an inspiration to me. Daniel is one of those people. There are people out there that really inspire me, and Daniel's one of them. So let me just put posit that. But in terms of um, impact, I, I never know, you know, I, I, people always bring up Loveline as something important to them, certainly from about 96 to maybe 2006, somewhere in there, it seems like that was pretty impactful to give people an environment to talk about these things. Because you got to remember, there was no internet then. There was a lot of confusion. It was the, it was the, the AIDS era, you know, AIDS epidemic. And what is safe sex and what's normal and what should I do? What should I not be doing? And so people seem to have appreciated that environment and, and the fact that, you know, I tolerated all the, the, the craziness of, you know, sitting next to a comedian and other people every night, which, which is what gave the environment its accessibility. And I, and I knew that. Very relatable. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Daniel. Drew, what makes you happy? Um, you know, I, I'm a workaholic, <laughs> if that's not obvious already. Uh, and I have noticed during this outbreak, it made me unhappy to not have my work. So I learned from this thing that to, to be able to contribute is important to me. So that makes me happy. I, and that, and not having not seeing that, uh, you know, it, it really pushed my face in the mirror a little bit about things like retirement and aging. It's like, well, when are you going to let go of this? But I, 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 I'm, it helped me prepare for that inevitability, but it also made me realize I, I want to keep contributing. Nice. Well, you know, Loveline, I credit for a lot of my success in the dating world. <laughs> 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 during during the years, love line was declining. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but thinking about it seriously, like at this moment in time, people aren't dating yeah. like in person. Do you feel this will be a good opportunity to begin like a Zoom dating type of experience where you get to know the person better? I, I do, uh, and I and I think we're developing some skill with that. I, I don't understand what the rules of the game are going to be yet. You know how people form and break. Uh, I know that millennials and uh, Gen Zers are generally really bad at forming relationships and breaking them. That courtship, that, let's call it what it is. We just don't use that term anymore. They, they just don't do it, and they're ending up with sort of deficiency of skill sets by the time they're like twenty three, twenty five. 
And I would encourage them to maybe use Zoom as a less um, threatening way to start to practice these things. And once we can all get back into the flesh world, then have meetings. But, but I would argue that it might, maybe, maybe this will be something I've been looking for for a long time, which is maybe you'll go from Zoom to having a meal and spending time with that person and, and learning to understand what you enjoy about somebody else and who you are in a relationship and what you're looking for in somebody else before you launch into a Tinder hookup. So maybe this will be a little bit of a, uh, I'm hoping that this will be a, in, in, a little bit of an interlude or in, interpolated space, the Zoom space, that will encourage more outside meeting that is not strictly about hooking up. Boy, that wasn't the answer you wanted, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, all right. So Dr. Drew, um, can you share an experience or maybe work with a patient that impacted you so much that you felt it sort of, I don't know, kind of affected where you took your career and your work? Yeah. Um, that was back in the day. I never thought of it this way, but this is the story. This is true of the story I'm going to tell you. Uh, I was running around the psychiatric hospital in the 90s, running their medical services. So I became an expert in the medical care of psychiatric patients. Well, guess where all the medical, the majority of the medical problems were? They were down on the drug unit. So we had a, a freestanding drug unit that I ended up running for 20 years. But at that point, I was a consultant uh, uh, for the medical stuff. And when I got down there, actually it was actually in the 80s when I first started hanging out down there, and there was a doctor there who had made drug withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal a clinical discipline. Now, mind you, at that point, I was in training in a county hospital where we were seeing tons of alcoholics and heroin addicts. We'd sort of pat them on the back and go, hey, stop doing that stuff. Don't you see what's happening? You know? And then the, how we did the withdrawal was very haphazard and wasn't very effective. Here, this guy had a discipline of withdrawal, and I thought, oh, man, I got to learn this because this is really interesting. So I became really good at drug withdrawal. So people were asking me to consult on drug withdrawal, and the, and the whole time, I'd go in the nursing station, and I, for some reason, I was drawn to the culture of that whole environment of a drug treatment center, and I, and I enjoyed spending time with the staff and everything. But I'd always look through the window of the nursing station into the treatment room, you know, where there's always a treatment room and a drug, drug at least one treatment room and a drug center. And there were the 12-step, you know, huge poster the 12 steps on the wall and I would go what is that stupid stuff I'm you know I'm doing real medicine I'm taking these people off drugs I'm getting them off that's really what that's I I, I wouldn't say it out loud but I would think it right and because and, I knew nothing about recovery I knew zero this is 1989 or something I'd say about 89 and I, I knew nothing and um because we were not trained in any of it and trust me doctors still are not trained in it trust me but uh, I was treating a methadone heroin addict uh, and her sister was a cocaine addict and their dad was this very flamboyant uh, Russian dude. And these women were dying. And, I, they, and they, for the first time they said, hey, we wanna see you back to help us manage our care. Keep coming back, you know, please be our doctor going forward. So I'd kind of check in on them after, and they were in the hospital for a long time, like a couple of months. And I was stunned to see these young women who were dying start to become something better than they ever knew they could be. I was like, I was like what, 
what is going on here? This is, I, I, I've never seen anything like this. In, in medicine, you sort of go from acutely ill to chronically ill. And to see people go from dying to better than they'd ever been. And then I, my, like the scales fell from my eyes and I started looking at what was going on in that unit. I was like, oh my God, I, I need to understand what this is and I become a part of it. And that's where it all started for me. Wow. Wow. Powerful. So Drew, you've been helping people um, with uh, you know, a multitude of issues from radio to television and you, know, you name it for many, many years. Um, but you and Susan have been together, triplets, workaholic, blah, blah, blah. In a, you know, and, you, and we all get to find out when the really famous people's relationships don't work. What's the secret? What's the secret to your parents? I asked us that before, and I was funny. I was thinking about it just today because I was thinking about what I would tell my own kids. And, <laughs> and, and I, I don't have a good answer. Uh, I, I feel like I just found the right person for me, somebody that I'm as excited to be around. You, you, I, I describe it as being into that person. You've got to be into that person spiritually, sexually, emotionally as friends. Uh, you have to appreciate the, the whatever the things that drive you crazy about that person that also can be assets. And you can sort of understand that, the, you know, that I, I was thinking about it this morning as, well, you know, if a gun's pointing at you, that's a bad thing. But if you need the gun and you're holding it, it's the same gun, it's the same gun, you understand? And so you can, you can look at everything that we have in a relationship as something that has assets in certain situations and liability in others, but try to stay positive and stay focused on not winning. That's the one thing I would say, not winning any argument, because then if one of you wins, the relationship loses. But that value the relationship above conflict winning. And be grateful if you're as into that person today as you were when you met when you were 25. That to me is an extraordinary and crazy thing, but true for me. It's the best I can do. I love that. That's awesome. Well, let me say out loud that Dr. Drew, you have been very helpful in a whole bunch of ways to so many people, to include myself, because I am a big fan and my two daughters of the mass singer. <laughs> and we don't we don't miss an episode. And so I told them, I said, hey, I'm gonna talk to Dr. Drew. They're like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you were great man you were great what was that experience like one of the funnest things i've ever done and, and so i i um i like doing things you know showing up in places people don't expect me right and and, uh, and i saw the i saw the, when i first saw the first billboard for that show i went i should be on that i i, just, I, said, I, I would freak everybody out i and i know and I've known Jenny and Ken forever, and I knew they would never suspect me, and it would screw with them. And so I kind of went on to mess with them a little bit. And, and uh, it's an amazing production, guys. I mean, it, it's if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. And how they do it, it's. Oh I, I I do have one question, just yeah. along this line. Do you get to sing in a studio and then limp it there, or are you actually sing in there? Oh no, it's you get you you get a. I I ended up having a vocal. In, so I used to sing opera when I was a kid. When I was young, I, I trained in opera for many years. I, for two seconds, thought I might do it for real, and thank God, you know, thought better of it. And, but I always kept, I always kept kind of singing and training, and I would get sell, I would sing national anthems at Dodger games, and 
you know, and, and the Kings games and I would get sold at charities and stuff like that. So I kind of always kind of sung a little bit. And um, so I knew I could sing, but when I started, I don't sing pop stuff at all. And so I thought, oh my God, this, that's going to be a problem. And when I started training for this, there was a part of my voice that just was absent, just gone. And so I had to get a big EMT workup and I had a bleed on my cords and I had all kinds of problems. And so I had to, from the beginning, get vocal rehab and then work around a certain range of my voice and blah, and then getting songs cleared and learning them. I learned about 30 songs. Wow. Well, I learned 20 songs and then I put the costume on and I was sort of going Sinatra, Buble, that kind of stuff. And I put the costume on and I went, oh no, this is a rock eagle. It's a rock eagle. And they made a big point, rock, rock, rock. So I'm like, oh my God, I, how, do I, how do I do that? Learn 10 more songs. And then they have you do one day with choreography with your mask on. So the, the, so the, the, choreo the dancers don't know who you are. You're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to speak to anybody from the moment you leave your house. And then ne the next day you have one full rehearsal and then you sing. And that's it. And it's- You're singing live on the live show in the mask. You're singing live. You're, you're, Thing. You have one rehearsal and you sing, and that's it. Uh, now, they, they, I think they monkey with the, um, like if you're off pitch or something, I think they will help you a little bit with right, auto. Right. Have you noticed? I know some people had a lot of auto tune I was hearing uh, during the show, but, but it's still live, live. That's, that's all they do to it. So it's, it's crazy. It, it's crazy what they do with the choreography and the fireworks and the musical clearances and the training and the, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> she, 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 goes, she comes whispering and goes, isn't that Dr. Drew? <laughs> yeah. Well, that show is amazing. That show is amazing. We have so much fun watching that show. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's and I and I was doing good because I'm friends and have done a lot of work with Ricky Lake over the years. So I okay. knew it was Ricky. He was I've great. done work with Latoya Jackson. I knew it was Latoya. Oh, you did, yeah. There was no way. I no way I would have thought. No way we could have figured out that that was you. No and way. So, and so that's what I loved about doing it. That's that was really my favorite part. And so what they don't show, there's a whole big interaction between you and the judges that gets cut out, right? The the when the when you finish the song and when they're about to take the mask off, those are about 10 or 15 minutes of back and forth, which they edit down to about two minutes. And in my original back and forth after I sang, uh, Jenny goes, uh, Jenny goes, uh, uh, I think you're, I think, I'm thinking Adam Carolla. And I thought, Jesus, she's getting all the way to Adam and she doesn't go the next little step. And then Ken, Ken Jong. I knew Ken Jong before anybody did. He was an internist for Kaiser, and he used to come on my radio show because I liked his comedy. He was a comic back then, and I realized he was an excellent doctor, and I used to have him sit in for me. He used to actually sit in on Loveline a couple of times because he, he had the goods. He was qualified to do it. And he goes, I know who you are. You had a talk show. I used to sit in for you. You're... Craig Ferguson. <laughs> so, okay. These guys got so close, but they didn't get all the way there. It's crazy. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's all right. Barb's yeah. la quite last third question. Yeah, third well, question? and then first, our last, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Drew, for joining us. It's been so awesome getting yeah. to chat with you. Um, so my question is actually, what haven't we asked you that you'd want to share with people out there? Maybe something that a lot of people don't know about you. 
that I mean, there's a lot of stuff I could always talk about, but but that I guess that I'm so grateful. Uh, I haven't been feeling that great. I'm feeling sorry for myself lately when in this lockdown. But most days when I'm not on lockdown, and I and, and to be fully you know transparent, I've been depressed. I, I I was surprised how dysphoric I got during this whole thing. I think we've all been a little depressed. I think when we all look back on this, we're gonna go, "Hey, man, that was you were depressed. How how do you not be depressed when you don't have a future and you can't contact people? I mean, it's crazy." But most days, I wake up so grateful to be able to do something creative that I, I never I never thought I thought I was just gonna be working in my office and maybe the psych hospital the rest of my life and, and, and I, I did not know I'd be doing all these interesting creative things that have at their core an attempt to just do good to just help I, I, I am so grateful for that you have no idea and also that I'm super sensitive and so I know the stuff I do is risky and I get when I get into crap storms about it, it really affects me emotionally badly. Um, but I kind of push through it and try to try to look at you know the big picture and just keep going. Thank you, Drew. Um, so you know I don't. It's interesting because I I followed you. I've um, worked with you or you know worked under you, and and I've. Uh, um, and you're my friend. And, and so, but here's something that I've never asked and I don't know the answer to. And I'm not sure if you want to discuss this or not, but I don't know much about your faith. And uh, I know that, oh, you, were you going to say something? You know, go ahead, please. Okay. Because um, uh, the reason why is he, him, God, uh, or higher power is referred to uh, in the 12-step model nine times in 12 steps. And so it intrigued me as I'm sitting here saying, I don't know much about your faith. No. So I, I, I've sat in the presence of the magic of the faith piece of recovery. I, I mean, I've just seen the miracle. Uh, but I don't feel the same connection to it that I wish I did. Uh, I was raised Jewish until about the age of nine or ten. Uh, and then there was like no anything in my family about uh, we were sort of scientists and, and sort of, you know, I wouldn't say we were atheists, but we were just sort of nothing. But I have borne witness to the magic of, uh, of, of a spiritual life repeatedly. And I have tried to come up with my own synthesis of it uh, as somebody that, you know, doesn't quite connect to it. I, I feel for me. It, it exists in, in the, 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 where I experience God is with the experience in communion and in connection with other humans. That's when I know what people are talking about. I, I can't see it as something, you know, very elaborate, but I know when I'm in the presence of it. And, and for me, it's, and it's, it's always about the other. It's always about the shared experience with other humans. And, um, I would sort of call it magical for me when, when I can feel so deeply connected to another human that I'm feeling their feelings. And so as I'm thinking about it and talking about it, I, I feel that the therapy was probably my road into it and opened it to me. Um, and I'm always wondering if I'm going to sort of come upon a deeper or, or more uh, abstract spiritual connection but right now it's with other people. Cool, nice. Well, I wanna say thank you, Dr. Drew, for um, making time for us. 
I know at the very top of the, the show, Daniel, you said you, you had a question of why you and Barbara would be spending any time with someone like me. <laughs> so, so what's the answer, Daniel? Well, I think if people go back and they watch the show, they'll realize why I asked. But thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Try the veal and drive safely. <laughs> well, you're, you're, that's, that's really good, Daniel. I appreciate you. Okay, you guys, we have five minutes left. Any last questions? Thank you for doing that round. I do. I have something I want to ask. Okay. Drew. Yeah. So, Drew, we, uh, so uh, Robert, who I don't know how much you know about Robert, but Robert actually um, is, is a well worldwide renowned um, uh, dietitian, if you will, uh, trained many world championship uh, boxers multiple titles, MMA, the, the, the greatest of the great all time. Uh, and, and Robert is sought after by them still today with this Diet Free Life program. So one of the things though, and, and during this virus right now, I find it quite compelling, is the psychology of someone who's heavy. The, uh, and, and it does ride right along the curve of addiction of self-esteem, self-worth, uh, potential traumas when they were younger that that they substituted food and poor nutrition uh, with with deep seated emotional problems and so you know we have this opportunity Robert to have somebody who's a leader in our whole country you know in, in, in these types of subject matter I wonder if you could talk about your findings when it comes to obesity uh, and people that are heavy with the emotional problems that you've yeah. seen this is what I was talking about when I was um, mentioning the Surgeon General of California coming up with this adverse childhood experience uh, policy that they were going to push forward. If you have five or more adverse childhood experiences, and that includes divorce, domestic violence in the home, parent with alcoholism or drug addiction, I mean, you, they add up very quickly in, in our culture. <laughs> Abandonment, uh, obviously other forms of overt abuse. You have a, a three or more of those, you're already in trouble. You have five, you're going to be, you're guaranteed serious mental health issues. And one of those is obesity. I mean, the, you know, the whole Kaiser Adverse Childhood Experience study was because uh, somebody had the smart idea to look at all their medical patients and say, uh, oh my goodness, all of our medical patients have high adverse childhood experiences. I wonder if there's an association. And of course there is, of course there is. If you're, if you're unable to regulate your emotions, if you are highly traumatized, how do you regulate your appetite? How do you regulate, how do you make food choices? How do you focus enough to do that? How do you care enough about yourself to take care of these things? You're often in survival mode. And so this dysregulation is what I sort of see as the key problem right now. We, we don't build the emotional machinery of regulation. And when we are dysregulated, we do things like overeat and everything, you know, abuse drugs, whatever it might be. And it turns out that regulation, the, the actual process of building a regulatory system normally requires two people, uh, requires two brains. Uh, we normally develop it in relationship with our moms. That's sort of the, the primary paradigm. And it is that exchange that you, Daniel, were talking about in therapy and I was talking about in therapy. That's how we build those experiences with another satellite central nervous system is how we build our emotional landscape. And if we are traumatized in childhood, we 
naturally exit the frame of closeness. We can't trust, we can't attune, we're, we're under threat when we're close to another human being because we expect abuse and trauma. And we exit the frame that allows us to build that emotional machinery. And if we don't build that emotional machinery, now we are left to whatever the culture gives us to try to solve our emotional problems. And yummy food is one of those things. Well, I love what you said earlier, also when you mentioned out loud that you were feeling some depression. Yeah. Because a few shows back, I was sharing with, with everyone. I was going, am I depressed? Like, I literally was waking up, I was waking up going, am I depressed? I even talked to Daniel about, go, what is going on with me? And yeah. I feel like I was there. Yeah. I feel like I was, and I couldn't, there wasn't like a specific moment. Right. Maybe it's the fact that we aren't connecting. Yeah. <laughs> and I know Daniel's coming up with all kinds of ideas in his head. Right? I did. I just had a really funny. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. You are a bad Robert, guy. Robert, Robert, Robert <laughs> around and said, man, am I depressed? And then you know that little buzzer that you ring for the secretary? He went <laughs> down to the hotel lobby and went, send up room 204. <laughs> send up room 204. Daniel, please use that mind for good. <laughs> I do now, Drew, I promise. Oh, my goodness. No, but hey, I think we all felt it. And I love your transparency because yeah. that helped a lot of people right now to, mm -hmm. to hear someone who's leading the charge and is an influencer uh, say out loud that, hey, this is tough on me. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. Daniel never does that. He makes it look like life is great. He's out in the backyard fishing on the boat. No, you know what I did? I, I, you know, and, and, and I do attribute quite a bit of it to, to my faith, which I, I got a lot closer to after I finally got sober. And, and you, Drew, know better than anybody in, on this panel how long I battled that problem until I figured it out. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, um, but I will say that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's just the law of nature. And so... Right now, the oceans are getting cleaner and they're restocking with fish. And there's lakes and rivers that are growing grasses that protect certain frogs. And, you know, I mean, there's stuff going on in the ecosystem that you absolutely wouldn't believe. There's been a giant toilet flush that went on in the, in the oxygen in the air around cities because of the number of cars that haven't been driven for two months now. There's ozone layer replenishing itself. I mean, it, it's amazing. The, the crab, they're saying that the number of crabs in the Bering Sea will double in three months if we kept up this. So, you know, and there's people going home. When we talked with Drew earlier about, you know, what would come of this, you know, my kids have never been closer to me. Never. It's been since they're four, five, six that they climb all over me and talk to me and, you know, They've, they've, they've gotten closer to me. So, yeah. Yeah, and I did a video and I'm walking with my phone out on my front porch and I looked right into the camera and I said, man, I worked so many hours. If I only just could get a little time off. Man, you know what? My wife keeps bugging me and saying to me, we don't communicate what we used to because of the kids and that job that you have. Man, if I could just sit back and relax and do a little bit more reading and have some time to exercise, I'd be in better shape. Man, my, my eating is so off because I just don't have the clock. Well, guess what? All of that is available to you right now. Your wife, your house, all those jobs that you walk by for you. There's things I walk by on this farm 
for years that I haven't gotten to, that I've got a dumpster out there now, stuff's coming out of the top of the attic in the garage in the basement. And I'm outside and I'm working and my kids are planting a fully for the third year in a row organic garden without a phone in their hand, talking to me about what school looks like for next year and what thing, what languages they want to take and why they like this boy and that boy. And I'm picking up the ax in my hand, going, boys, <laughs> boys are going to start coming to my house with my little girls. And the, and the reality, and, and getting ahead of the curve and talking to them about, literally talking to my 12 year old about, just remember, remember something you have, you know, I thought I turned that off. You have the, uh, the ability you know, to be in control of what you say and who you date and what you do with your body, Avis. Now, I never thought being a single dad, that would be more the mom's role. Um, but I don't have that for, for my kids. It's just me. And so I took a chance and I was quite astounded at how open she already was with it and how much she already knew. And uh, you know what? If it hadn't been for this, um, I wouldn't have had that conversation with her probably for two more years before I would have saw something that forced me to, to, to get in that. So be careful what you wish for and be careful what you think you need because there are opportunities available to us. There, This is that quiet time, Drew, to start writing that next book that you want to write, that to, to do those things because you have the time. You could outline that book right now, that book that will help millions of people, which is what you're about, being of service. So there is the things that you can get depressed about, but there's also other shifts in the in the in the polar dynamic of your life that you can adjust to and take advantage of. That is why Daniel's with you guys. That's right. Yeah. That's our bishop, baby. <laughs> All right, well, hey, thank you, Dr. Drew. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure to see you spend time with you guys, really. Thank you so much for coming to the show. I'll call Susan when I get off. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. God bless.